Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Welcome to the Secret Resume podcast, hosted by me, Melody Moore. In this podcast, we explore the people, places, and experiences that have shaped my guests, those which have influenced who they are as people and where they are in their work life today. You can listen in as we have a rich exploration of often unexamined and undiscussed but very important aspects of their lives, or as I like to call it, their secret resume. So hi everybody, really excited to uh, be here today for this podcast because it's a bit of a different one. Um, The roles are going to be reversed and I thought because I'm um, doing the author series uh, of, I think we've got six or seven different people that I'm interviewing, um, I thought it might be interesting to be interviewed myself because I am also an author now, which feels very strange to call myself that. Um, And I've asked my very dear friend Jen Kidby to interview me. So she's going to be me today and I'm going to be a guest. So Jen, do you want to say hello? Thank you, Mel. And hello, everybody. I'm so excited to be here, to be in in this seat with you, Mel, in the other seat. And we've known each other for some time. And I was thinking about this conversation and thinking, I wonder what I will learn that I don't already know about you. So I'm kind of a bit intrigued. Um, I'm a, a tiny bit about, about me first, just for, for everybody listening. So I've worked for just over 25 years now in uh, various roles to help organizations be places where people can thrive. I've worked within organizations. I've worked as a consultant. I've done some private practice work, all in the space of coaching and leadership development, team development, people and culture strategy and organization development. So it's been a real ride. I've had some brilliant roles. um, And 2016, I took a secondment in Toronto, in Canada, which is where I live now with my husband, daughter, and two cats. Um, and that was supposed to be a two-year secondment and fell in love with Canada so much that made it a permanent move. So that's where I am today. Um, and Mel, we were chatting the other day. We met 2002, I think. 2002. And I still remember it was my first day working at um, an organization in Oxford that both Mel and I worked for. We went out for lunch together in Summertown in Oxford. And we've been, it's that beautiful thing of finding in a colleague something so special that a beautiful friendship comes from it. And we've been in touch ever since. So thank you for inviting me to be here. And I wanna ask you, how does it feel sitting in the other chair today i'm slightly nervous yeah <laughs> i maybe now have more empathy for my uh, for my guests but actually really excited as well i found that um people always tell me how much they enjoy doing the podcast how they enjoy looking back over their lives and their careers in a different way to what they normally do so i'm really looking forward to doing that for myself and you were the only person I thought of to interview me. So it's a good job you said yes, really. <laughs> I, when I saw your WhatsApp message, I was so excited. I had that, this is going to be fun. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so I guess like you do with all of your guests, you go way back 
to an early stage of their journey. So my, my first question for you is when you go back to your early life, what are some of the things that shaped you? Yeah, it's, um, it's really interesting just because I happen to have just been with my family. So it kind of reminds me because we're recording this just after Christmas. And so I've been up north with my family. But the thing that probably stands out more than anything is the fact that I'm the oldest sister. Um, I'm not the oldest child. I'm just the oldest sister. So I have a brother who's uh, um, 18 months older than me. But I think um, then I have two sisters who are seven and eight years younger than me. So I went from being the youngest child to being one of the oldest children, if that makes sense. Um, but with that came, and I'm sure lots of people who are from large families will identify with this. There was a lot of responsibility came with that and i think particularly being the oldest girl and we're talking the 70s now it was a sexist time um more so i think than it is now and therefore as the oldest girl there was quite a lot of responsibility put on me particularly in in terms of looking after my sisters um and i think that that has I think there's two elements. One is the responsibility and feeling responsible for other people. And a kind of, I've always felt, I often feel like a big sister to people or motherly, I think now also being a mother, but that kind of is how I've often felt towards other people. But I've just felt a very strong sense of responsibility that things are my responsibility. I can't say no because I feel very responsible. And I think the other thing that, that stands out is being part of a big family. You have to just fit in with what the family wants. So um, your needs, individual needs, kind of um, are outweighed by the collective need. And that's something that's really played out in my life as well is, is not always knowing what my needs are and certainly in certain circumstances finding it very hard to articulate them which I know many people find surprising about me because that's not how I come across but certainly in personal relationships I've always found it very difficult to articulate needs um, I think when the stakes are high then then that's always been quite difficult. Well when did you first become aware that 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 dynamic from your your family from being the oldest sister when did you first become aware that that was shaping you and had shaped you I think um to some degree um when we did our coaching course um mm. which we did was maybe was like 2004 ish yeah, yeah, five I, yeah. something like that um that was quite deep. We used to call them that soul dredging weekends. Do you remember? Gosh, I do soul dredging. It, it was though, right? It was really, really deeply personal. Yeah, yeah. And so I think that my interest in personal development really kicked off then. And um, I think, you know, understanding myself started at that point. Um, I had some therapy after that to to kind of understand myself mm -hmm. better. But I would say that was when it first started. And mm -hmm. then uh, we'll come on to this. But the course that I'm doing now has really, really helped me understand yeah. myself so much better. Yeah. 
And just going back to that, that childhood phase of your life when you were the oldest sister, that that sense of responsibility, how did that show up then at, at that early age? I think looking after my sisters a lot. Um, so literally childcare. Um, but even as a, you know, as a, um, a student, uh, I went to York University, which was a couple of hours away from where I lived. And my sisters would come and stay with me, um, you know, in their holidays, they would come over and, um, you know, that's quite unusual, I think, for most students to be looking after kids that were maybe 10 or 11 at the time. Um, so, yeah, it's it and it didn't. What was interesting is it didn't feel like a burden. It just felt natural that that was how it was. And, and I guess it's part of what always led into me thinking I'd always want children um, is that I enjoyed looking after my sisters. And, uh, you know, I've. I've continued to play a part in their lives as as we've all grown. I, I find it so fascinating listening to you talk about your family. And just before we started recording, we were chatting about Christmas. <laughs> and Mel, I think you said it was a quiet Christmas. There were just 11 Ten or 11 10 of us, you. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I, I'm an only child. And moving here to Canada, I said, well, our Christmas was three of us and two cats, <laughs> which is really quiet. So I'm, I, I always find it fascinating that all those dynamics and everything you learn um, through those dynamics that, that carries through with you. Are there any particular memories that stand out from that time and that phase of your life? Um, I think the times that stand out the most are going on holiday, actually. Mm. Um, my dad was a teacher and so we would quite often go camping as very many uh british children of who had parents were teachers will recognize this we went camping in france <laughs> that's what everybody did not until we were older not until i was older not until probably um you know well after my sisters were born but then it became a regular thing that we would um go uh, and we'd have these terrible drives, four kids in a car, it was a nightmare. And, you know. Sounds like a sitcom. <laughs> like a good life, not the good life. Um, it was, um, yeah, so it was great fun because once we got there, it was horrible before we got there. Everyone fighting in the car and my dad getting really stressed. Obviously pre-sat nav, they'd be trying to read these, you know, maps, <laughs> French maps terrible <laughs> absolutely terrible but um yeah what i remember there was the freedom of being able to i mean i grew up in the countryside so mm -hmm. it was very free certainly much more free than kids these days and certainly much more free than my daughter is but you know mm -hmm. we would go out all day and disappear and my friends had a farm and we'd go up to the farm and hang out and it was a very you know no mobile phones parents obviously didn't know where we were and that was equally true when we went on holiday as at home. But I remember my childhood being quite, um, yeah, free in that sense of of you just disappear off and yeah. come back. And it's yeah. such a cliche to talk about that, but it was genuinely true. Um, yeah, so I remember that kind of, um, yeah, no, well, it's like no responsibilities, but then the responsibilities yeah. of my sisters. Yeah. yeah. I was just hearing that, uh, almost that paradox of freedom and yeah. responsibility. And responsibility. Both sound like 
they yeah. were present in your in your life earlier. yeah yeah and I the other thing I remember randomly is um when I went to secondary school a lot of my friends lived in you know maybe five or five miles or so away from me so especially mm. as I got older there was a sense of um you know, I saw my friends at school, uh, but there was quite often things would be going on and I wasn't there because I lived, you know, five or so miles away. Mm. Um, and I think in some ways that was a good thing because it probably made me study more than, <laughs> than I would have done if I got distracted. <laughs> um, but yeah, I have a slight sense of, of sort of isolation from that as well as not being... Um, around when some of the fun stuff was going on mm, mm. that must have been that I know nowadays in organizations we talk a lot about belonging and sense of mm. belonging and inclusion that sounds like it could have been quite challenging for you at the time is is that what it was like uh yes and no I would say I don't feel like I was um uh I definitely was had a, a gang of friends mm. um I was definitely part of the group um but at times the group were doing things and I wasn't um so mm. yes not most of the time but sometimes mm. yeah mm. yeah I didn't feel kind of other or isolated yeah um yeah. just more the physical location meant that mm. I didn't always get to join in yeah and then thinking about that that earlier time in your life who who around you were your your inspirations, your role models? It's a really interesting one, role models, isn't it? Because people often uh, have very clear answers around role models. And really, there's only one person that comes to mind for me. Someone asked the other day about who did I admire and, you know, want to be like, and I don't have that kind of aspiration often. Um, but I did... And it's only really, I think, reflecting on it that I realised this. I don't think I realised at the time. But I had a godmother called Ruth, who I am named after. We are mm. both Ruths as middle names, aren't we? We um, are both Ruths. I was named after a donkey called Ruth, though. <laughs> so yours has far more meaning. Yeah, exactly. Um, no animals involved in my the naming of my middle name. But my auntie Ruth... We called her Auntie Ruth. In those days, everyone was an auntie, whether they were an auntie or not. Yeah, um, they? Aunties yeah. and uncles. Your next-door yeah. neighbours, your auntie yeah. and uncle. <laughs> yeah, your mum, your parents' friends, they were aunties and uncles. Your friends' parents were aunties and uncles. Anyway, I don't know if that's still the case. I don't think so. Um, but Auntie Ruth was my grandmother's cousin. Uh, mm -hmm. So she was the same age as my grandma. Um but she was my godmother. And I think part of the reason that she was my godmother is I think she lost a child um, mm. around the time that I was born, I think. Or maybe before that, but I think that's partly why mm. um, she became my godmother and I was called oh. Ruth. Um, that, and that sort of thing wasn't always talked about back then. No. At all was it no. even if you're saying now I think this is yeah and yeah and she never they never had children her and her husband um but mm. they had lots of nieces and nephews who they were very close to and I was one of them uh, but Ruth was 
So in my family and where I grew up, so I grew up in the Lake District, rural um, tourist area. Uh, I didn't really know women who had professional jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, I and and I, you know, I'm always really interested in this idea, um, particularly of social mobility and and what you learn from, you know, your environment. And yeah. you know, I didn't have people who. Um, I could look at and think, oh, yeah, I want to be like her. In fact, I didn't really know anybody, particularly other than my uncle was a lawyer, but they didn't live close to us, who had a professional job. You know, it wasn't Mm. everybody who I knew, their parents were farmers or uh, teachers. You know, we were surrounded Mm. by teachers because of my dad. Even my mum had trained as a teacher but didn't teach. Um, Mm. So she was someone who she'd gone off to... Africa and uh, and taught in Africa I don't even know when it was it must have been like the 40s or something like it was really wow. um, by unusual by yeah yeah wow. yes and she had um, a really nice house and lots and particularly as I got older and became a student and they were down in Bristol and I'd go and visit them on my own um, without the family. Previous to that, it'd always been with the family. And, um, you know, they, I just really got on with her and her husband. Uh, we used to talk about books and what books we've been reading. And, you know, bearing in mind that this person was the same age as my grandma, mm. we were discussing um, and swapping books um, because we liked this. I remember reading the, um, the Louis de Bernier um, series, which is set in South America, and it's all about magical realism. And we both really loved it. You know, we were swapping these books between us and, um, and yeah, just had a, just a really kind of close relationship. And, and I kind of felt a, a um, I can't think of the right word, uh, a kinship with her. Mm. Um, and and was inspired by her, you know, the fact that she didn't have children, she'd had this job, she'd had this kind of exciting life, probably until she got married, because that was what happened in those days. But um, <laughs> well, I think she'd married a bit later anyway, you know, and just there was a different way. And that, yeah. for me, she'd gone to university, you know, she'd studied. And that was, and like I say, it was only afterwards I felt I was more like her than some of the mm. other people that I knew. Um, what sort of age were you at this stage where you were? I think I was probably in my twenties. Yeah, right. I, I definitely around the time I was a student. Um, but I think that was quite, quite kind of yeah. She just really sticks in my mind. She she died a number of years ago, um, and. Yeah, it was it was very sad, really, because just really, she was just a great person, such a great conversationalist, you know, really used to love just spending time with her and her husband, Mike, we just talk about everything. And in a way that you wouldn't expect to with your grandma, for instance, who she was the same age as there was just a, there was no judgment. And we just have really interesting, really interesting conversations. The way you're talking about her, it sounds as though she was a bit of a mentor for you before mentorship became the thing that it was today, but that informal sense of 
somebody who's been there has had some experiences that I can learn from yeah yeah um, yeah and I think I think she'd studied history and I did history a level and did well in it and she was very proud you know it was that kind of mm. yeah just that kind of thing and she came to my wedding even though she was old and in a wheelchair not well you know she traveled the length of the country to come to my wedding wow wow which means I must have met her, or at least yes. been in the same place yeah. as her. Exactly. Never knew. They, there's yeah. my first thing, or one of my first <laughs> things that I didn't know. I've learned something already. Yeah, yeah, amazing. Um, so then moving on um, a few years, where did university and the decision to study, I'm assuming, psych, I think psychology, or am I really going to show myself up now? No, yeah, it was. <laughs> where, where, did, where did all of, of, of that come from? What phase of your life was that? Yeah, so this is where you're going to see uh, how I make a lot of my decisions. <laughs> really <laughs> random. <laughs> Don't actually one, know. <laughs> it's one of the many things I love about you is the randomness. A conversation with you just meanders <laughs> everywhere. Brilliant. Yeah, that's the story of my life. Um <laughs> I don't actually know why I decided to study psychology. It wasn't really a thing at A-level when I, um, this was sort of in the late 80s. Um, I, I just decided, I think I knew someone who'd done it and thought, oh, that sounds interesting. I think someone, the daughter of a place I was working, um, you know, in a part-time job when I was at school, I think she'd studied psychology and I thought, oh, that sounds interesting. Having no clue what it was um, <laughs> or anything about it. Um, I just kind of stumbled in it. And in truth, I didn't really enjoy it. No? No. And yet here you are doing the work that you do. I know. I think it's because it was very broad and it was very sciencey, very sort of lots of biology and things which were not the kind of thing, it wasn't what I thought it was going to be. And I think if to, if I, I was to give any advice to anybody who was going to study psychology, I say, look at the course really carefully and see what it contains because they're all quite different and uh, they will be more or less aligned with what you think psychology is, um, depending on where you go to university. So I loved the things like, um, you know, all the learnings, the stuff about learning, which was particularly prevalent in the sports. I did a sports psychology module, which was quite new at the time. It was a bit trendy, um, but there was a lot about learning there, which was really interesting. And I really, I really loved just from curiosity, all of the, the mental health stuff, which was, you know, mm. fascinating, abnormal psychology, as it was known. Abnormal um, psychology, is that language, you think how that's changed. I know. I know. Abnormal psychology. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. But I didn't, when I did it, I realized, you know, I chose not to become a clinical psychologist because I thought that I would find it really difficult to not get too emotionally involved. Mm -hmm. That was my, I remember yeah. that as being a conscious choice, which is ironic yeah. given that I'm now studying a therapy qualification. But um, yeah, I, I decided, and I looked at clinical no criminal psychology they decided i was too scared to do that because uh, i was demanding in a in a different way yeah for sure. yeah uh, that was pre-cracker do you remember cracker i do remember <laughs> robbie coltrane <laughs> I used wasn't to it? Love that. Yeah. yeah yeah aka hagrid 
Um, <laughs> <laughs> you could have been you, just like Hagrid, is what I you're saying. Have been Hagrid. People are going to wonder what on earth we're talking about. <laughs> I know. Um, um, but yes, I was. Uh, so yeah, I I chose to go and work at the health service as a business manager instead. Mm. Yeah. It's a really interesting decision. And around this time of life came quite a big move for yes. you for a different yes. part of the world. Yes. Yes. So um, I'd been in the health service for a number of years. can't remember how many. Um, and I met someone, a man. Uh, and so, so another thing Danny and I have in common is that we both lived in Canada. So I mm. moved to Canada. So it would have been 1998 um i think i moved to canada so i met someone uh and moved over to canada to whistler ski resort uh to go and live there and had an absolute blast i've heard so many of your stories about your time in whistler um and i'm sure somehow that fed my desire to want to move to canada someday just <laughs> all of these stories um so just share a bit more what was what was that like what were you doing how how did that shape you? Yeah, well, I think what the reason that I I think it's part of my secret resume is it's probably not even something I would put on my resume because it was a two year period, mm. uh, but it was one of the most influential periods of my life. Um, and I think for one, I very much veered off the expected path. So I'd been a graduate trainee in the health service. I had a proper job. Um, postgraduate training scheme I was doing well you know the trajectory is one way and I went whoop and went mm. off and did something else and but even just that decision going against the grain going against the norm what was that like doing that at that stage absolutely nothing to me like um I I've never really been that bothered about what other people think I should do. Um, that's the truth. Um, I've always just, um, it just seemed like a good idea. Um, and I thought, well, I was young, you know, I was in my twenties. And it was come back and yeah, exactly. And it's <laughs> like, pff, nothing's irreversible. That's my view. Um, and you know, I didn't have a house, I didn't have children, I didn't have any pets, you know, I had no ties. Mm. So, um, I mean, it was a bit scary, but not particularly at all. Mm. Um, it was more exciting than anything else. You know, I was going to a different country and I couldn't even ski. <laughs> I was moving to a ski resort. <laughs> How long did it take you to learn to ski? Oh, it was a quite painful process. I learned to ski and snowboard at the same time. Obviously, Get not there. literally at the same time. <laughs> yes, um, uh, in the same time period, I learned both. And then I went with snowboarding over skiing because actually I found that even though it was immensely painful uh, starting because you fall over a lot and your stomach muscles kill um, from pulling yourself up. And um, once you get to a certain level, you can go anywhere on a snowboard, much more so than you can on skis. So I just kind of mm -hmm. stuck with snowboarding. My my husband is, as you know, Scott is a, a more of a snowboarder than a skier. I'm a, a skier. I tried snowboarding once. And what you say about your core muscles and the falling backwards to the two of us together on a ski lift. It's his, his snowboard. I'm with my skis trying to get off and not tip each other over. It's hilarious. 
Yes. Um, well, but all my family are skiers. So um, my brother and my dad in particular have always skied. And mm. so, yeah, the same. My dad was always great, though, because if you ever got to a flat bit, he'd pull me along. It's <laughs> 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 really helpful on a snowboard. You do. <laughs> So um, say a bit more about who about the people that you met yeah. and yeah, the experiences you had. Well, it was quite a humbling experience as well, because I'd gone from, you know, being a manager in the health service and, uh, you know, having a significant number of people reporting to me and having a lot of responsibility to right back to the bottom. So mm. I, um, I worked for a time in a hotel, which I hated with a passion largely because it was full of really demanding entitled people um the guests not the staff <laughs> uh, it was awful um i worked in an estate agents for a while which i quite enjoyed although that was where i had my first and only experience of sexual harassment um oh. and uh but the people i met some lovely people there and i met genu genuinely like Canadians are just like so friendly and really, really liked. I lived not an expat lifestyle. My mm. uh, boyfriend was Canadian. Mm. And so I lived a Canadian lifestyle. I didn't hang around with, I think, only one other British person. Yeah. Um, so that gives you a very different experience, I it think. Does. Yeah. Um, but uh, I eventually worked for most of the time for a guy called Hugh Smythe, who I told you about the other day. Yeah. Danny's been looking him up. Um, so I he's did. Like, I've never heard of him. Um, but he's very famous. Yeah. Very famous. Yeah. yeah. In that world, he's very famous. In the Canadian ski world, um, lots and lots of people would know him because he was one of the founders, really, of Whistler Black Home Ski Resort. Um, he'd lived there a long time. He kind of helped build it up. He got Intrawest involved, who invested a lot of money and built a lot of real estate mm -hmm. there. And he, at the time, was, uh, I think he was like the director of operations for 10 of their ski resorts. So they had 10 ski resorts around North America. This is at the time that you... At the time I was there. Contacted, yeah. Yeah, so that would have been right at the end, sort of 98, 99. And... Um, he was just such a great man, really humble, quite shy. Um, but like I say, everybody knew him. Uh, and I was I was the assistant to the assistant. Um, so he had an EA who was basically his left hand. I said his left hand woman waving my right hand. Um, <laughs> his left hand woman. Um, and I worked, I was her assistant. Um, so PA to them both, really. Um, mm. And I, like I say, humbling in many ways, having come from being the boss to being the PA. Mm. Um, and that even that takes courage, right? To go from that role that you were in where you'd, you were hierarchically, you were in a position of power to let that go mm. and be humble enough to take something like that yeah. is a really big deal and something that not a lot of people would do. It probably bothered me more than I thought um, and probably more financially than anything else. But um, it was it was really great in in many ways. Mm -hmm. One, because it was good for me. It's good for your ego, I think, to do that. But also um, I learned loads of new skills. Um, so, again, if you think about when this was, so it's just before the millennium, you know, computers were 
starting to be much more integrated into work lives. Um, and so I learned a lot of practical things like spreadsheets and PowerPoint and, and um, technical things that I didn't know previously. And um, he was also super, super interested in leadership more than any other leader probably I've ever met since. Um, and he was particularly interested in the theory of it. So he had loads of books and he would get magazines like um, Fast Company magazine and um, Harvard Business Review and stuff like that. And I'd never come across these before. So I wasn't that busy <laughs> because it wasn't that hard to job. Um, and I, as you and I have discussed, the work-life balance is different in Canada anyway, and particularly when you're in a ski resort. Um, so I, I, he would give me stuff to read and research and say, go and look at up this. I want to know more about it. They were very forward thinking. They're the first person I've ever saw where they used, you know, testing, psychometric testing to allocate people to different roles because they have mass mm. recruitment once a year. Yeah. yeah. Um, they were really far ahead mm. compared to, you know, 10 plus years later, people still weren't doing that when I came back sure, yeah. to the UK. Um, they called their HR department employee experience. I think that's so telling, isn't mm. it? What is the HR function called? Yeah. 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 So they were, it was a really interesting place to work to see how they treated people, how they empowered their employees. That was fascinating. But, but what it did was get me involved um, and made me realize that what I'd really enjoyed <clears throat> of my previous roles was development of other people. So mm. even though I was much younger than um, the people I was managing when I was in the NHS, I'd really enjoyed that um, opportunity to try and help people grow and develop. So that that's what really kick-started me realizing that that's what I really loved. But I, yeah. I have to have such a nice story about what an amazing man Hugh was. So this man, very important, was um, in a meeting with the guy who ran Whistler Blackhome, so was in charge of the whole resort. They yeah. were having a meeting. And he came running out of the meeting to get me because there was a bear just outside the window yeah. and he knew that I would love to see it. So he literally came and got me, interrupted his meeting so that I could see this bear that was um, on the hill outside the window. Wow. I mean, that it, it just, volumes. it really does. But the humanity, the human yes. connection of someone yeah. that senior in that sort of meeting yeah, Excellent. and he wouldn't have gone, gone and got someone else. It was because it was me and I was yeah. quite new to the area. And he knew and, that. Yeah. He knew, he'd he taken yeah. the time to get to know you a little yeah. bit, to know that yeah. that would be important to you. Yeah, just a very human man, very humble, uh, like I say, quite shy in many ways, but, yeah, such an inspiration. Yeah. And you mentioned that he introduced you to things like Fast Company and of a business review and you mentioned earlier about books and how important books had been mm. what 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 else were you reading at that time or, or inspired to take a look at that kind of accelerated and inspired you well I think this was the time that I came across Joe Jaworski I don't even know if I'm saying his name right I was how I've always said it in my head 
Um, but he wrote a book called um, Synchronicity, The Inner Path of Leadership, I think is the full title. And I think this is where I first came across it. If not then, there was an article I read about him then. Mm -hmm. So it was definitely uh, around this time. And A, Synchronicity is one of my all-time favourite books. Mm. Um, and it really, the reason I loved it is because it talks about leadership in such a deep, and holistic way um, that I completely, really, really loved it. But also it talked about, um, there was an article where it talked about the retreats, leadership retreats mm. that he did with others. And, you know, where they took people away quite often into the wilderness um, and really, took a very different approach to developing leaders and um, helping leaders really look into themselves but also connect with each other and he now is very much in uh, involved in the dialogue movement well he always was actually because that's yeah. you know where he he'd kind of done a lot of work um, mediation dialogue type work um, so he's always been a huge inspiration for me and that was where I think that I first came across him um, was was because of you really and that I also read that book it may even have been you who recommended me probably to read it, actually I've recommended it to um, many people yeah. <laughs> um, and it's a story of his transformation isn't it mm -hmm. From, was he a lawyer uh, yeah maybe but very much in the corporate world he worked at Shell I think didn't he was him I think he he did the thing I remember is a very um, left-brained, logical, common sense, and then his personal transformation to totally change how he saw the world. Yeah, yeah. And I, yeah. I just think that, um, you know, we need more of that kind of leader, and that's really what I want to do is mm. help. You know, it really inspired me, this sense of, wanted to make workplaces better places you know it, it really reinforced that that all of the stuff that i've been learning and it's it's absolutely true now as much as it was then it's the workplace i want to make a difference yeah um and i know that you can make a difference on a very small what feels like a very small scale but um it's a much larger scale and that, you know there's a it's a slightly cliched story you probably know i have no idea where i heard it from it may well have been peter vluckett who told our coach mm. training who knows um but there's a story of a man and there's lots of starfish have uh, you know that she's smiling she knows the story <laughs> you know my daughter was given this story at a theatrical production that she was a part of and one of the leads gave this story and i read it and i thought i love this story yeah you the story yeah so it's um, lots of starfish have washed up on the beach and there's a man walking along the beach and he's picking up the starfish one by one and he's throwing them back into the water and there's thousands of them and someone comes up to him and says well why are you doing that you can't possibly uh, get all of these starfish back into the sea and he says no but I'm making a difference to that one and that one and that one and I heard that story a really long time ago and, and that to me is how I feel about my career is mm. that if I can just have an impact on one person that's 
great for them. But what I also know is there's a ripple effect. And particularly yes. if we're working with leaders or, you know, my the new book is about teams. So, mm -hmm. you know, looking at a sort of small cluster of people, small cluster of starfish, um, then you can have really quite a profound impact because we spend so much time at work. We do. And you, you mentioned ripples. What I find fascinating, I've personally experienced this and I've worked with other leaders who also have experienced this. Sometimes you don't know the ripples. Mm. You just don't know how you've made a difference to that one person. Yeah. Who have they then gone on and been different with and shown up with mm. in a different way and then the ripples expand and mm -hmm. expand and, and you never, never know no. how far it's gone. No. And even people you work with, I was really... Uh, touched when I had my leaving do when I left Corn Ferry um, and would that been about 18 months ago and you know such a range of people came but what was lovely is how people came up to me and said really nice things to me about how I'd had an impact on them mm -hmm. that I would never ever have known um, and it's really touching when you hear that. That was as me as a leader, as a person, mm. rather than as a coach or facilitator, you know, in a sort of uh, personal context as, as a colleague. But, yeah, you just don't know. Uh, you know, we're all, you kind of have to trust that you are. Yeah. Doesn't surprise me one bit that many people came to say that. <laughs> Um, so let's go back. So we're so in Canada, and at, at some point you do come back to the UK. So what what sparked that, and, and what happened next? Yeah, I mean the relationship broke down. Um, I could have stayed in Canada. I did have a visa that would have allowed me to stay in Canada, but I think one of the there were two things. One was actually taking that step down, and it was a big step down. Uh, made me realise how important my work was to me, mm. and how important it was going to be to make that difference yeah. and I wouldn't have been able to do that in that the role that I was in and it was a bit dead men's shoes in um in somewhere like that because it's such a great place to live that no yeah. one moves on and oh, so it's oh. really hard to get a decent job um and it would have probably been years till I was able to get anywhere near back to where I had been previously so there was partly that, as I say, the relationship had broken down, but also my sister had had children um, and I really wanted to be back with my family. I mm. wanted to see my nephews grow up um, and be involved with them. Um, yeah. And yeah, I missed my family, so mm. I came home. You come home and then... Where do you find yourself now? I did a master's. <laughs> so um, having hated psychology. <laughs> I'm just thinking this. So you hated it, you did it for three years, and then you did a master's, and then, and then, and then. Yeah, so I hated psychology, but in the intervening period, so we're talking, I graduated in 92, and I came back to the UK from Canada in 2000. And I did a master's then because in that time occupational psychology had become much more prevalent and it wasn't mm. when I did my degree um so you know almost 10 years later it was um that's what I came back and did so I did a yeah. master's in occupational psychology at UMIST which doesn't exist anymore in Manchester 
Mm. It's now part of the University of Manchester. And um, that's where I really got to indulge and wallow in, you know, things like assessment and selection, leadership development, um, just all the things that I team development, you know, I had some great mm. tutors. Kerry Cooper was one of my tutors, very well known uh, occupational psychologist and Mike Smith, who um, also well known, he's always yeah. quoted around assessment and selection research. Yeah. Um, Ivan Robertson, also well known, you know, lots of good researchers uh, were at Manchester and um, good lecturers. So um, that really then kind of led me again accidentally because i don't plan anything um into a consulting career i just mm -hmm. kind of realized that that's what lots of people who did a master's in occupational psychology did mm. so i um yeah i went to i went to work for opp um which is where you and i met yeah. um, in oxford it's now called the myers-briggs company mm. uh, we spent many happy hour um, training people in MVTI, but also we did lots of development centers, didn't we? They were my favorite things. Well, yeah. We used to travel and go and do the development centers. Yeah, yeah, it was a great team. So many happy, happy memories, long out. Well, you and I spoke this, about this the other day about running assessment centers and still being there in the wash up at midnight, um, but also many, many happy, happy times and learning. That's the thing I remember mm. about that phase of my career is just being surrounded by people with the same specialism and learning. Mm. The thing I really st sticks out for me as well is the depth of experience that we got because it was quite a narrow range of things that the company did. You did mm. a lot of the same thing. And when I, I really noticed when I went to Hay Group afterwards, how people would do something once or twice and get bored and go off and not want to do it anymore. And mm. I think you just don't build up your skills in the same way then. So mm. I think that was one real advantage is that we really, and it was very best practice as well. So you really got schooled really. in, the standards in that. were so high. Yeah, yeah, in a way that I've not necessarily seen elsewhere. Um, mm. And it was one thing that I had to let go of, and I'm sure you've had the same experience. Um, when you work somewhere where people's expectations around best practice are not as high and they're more in the real world, um, you kind of have to let go of some of that sticking too tightly, else A, no one would ever buy from you, um, and B, you just end up fighting all the time, I think. Yeah. Yeah, the word pragmatism yes. is one that I've learned since my OPP mm. um, years is, okay, so that's the best practice. Now, pragmatically, how does that work in a real system that you are mm. now a part of or you're intervening? Mm. Yeah. yeah, and I think that's what was interesting about, so I was there for five years and then moved to Hay Group. Um, and that's and quite a, a change in terms of size, right? Yes. OPP, I think when we started, there was about 80 people. Yeah. All based in the same location. And then yeah. you go to Hay. Hay, Hay Group was um, not as big as many people think. It was maybe about 3,500, but all mm. over the globe. We were in 50 yeah. countries, I think. Um, and that was brilliant from again from a learning very different kind of learning so mm -hmm. both the global perspective but then also the um the breadth 
of what the organization did mm. um and again like you say that pragmatism you know so many people to learn from people who'd been you know though i was working with people who were in their 80s who'd been doing this mm. forever you know um and yeah just the global learning was incredible like realizing yeah. that you can't just apply things around the world and expect them to land uh, mm. so many great clients yeah just a mm. really really good place to work and you you stay with hay for some yeah. time yeah which then ultimately becomes Corn Ferry. Corn Ferry, yes. Yeah. Just prior to that, so um, it was whilst we were still Hay Group, um, I, um, so in that time I'd got married, had a child um, and became a single parent. Mm. And um, I made a sideways move. So again, it was this uh, kind of going off the obvious trajectory um, because I didn't think that I could be a consultant and a single parent the amount of travel I was doing, you know, mm. the expectation of super long days just didn't seem compatible. So I made a sideways move into the products department. Was at and the time so it was were... called productized services, which is a terrible product name. Is that even a word? Productized? American word, I think. I don't know. It's maybe <laughs> just made up. You, so previously you'd, so in Hay, you were doing a consultant role. Mm -hmm. You were suitcase in hand going wherever you needed to go yeah then this move to this other part yeah. of the organization but again quite a bold move because consultancy certainly the organizations i've been aware of is always seen as kind of the sexy fun thing yes glamorous thing so to step away from yeah. that how how was that perceived by people around you and... people thought i was mad yeah people actually said what are you doing why are you doing that yeah, they genuinely thought I was crazy. Because um, it, it was not the sexy bit. You know, the products department had historically been the um, support to the consulting mm. uh, department. That's what they existed for, was to provide diagnostics and products to to the um, consultancy. Mm. About a year uh, also before I moved over they'd actually gone direct to market so they were selling the products mm. direct to clients which is mm. why this role even came about because they were looking for people who had leadership experience assessment experience and diagnostic experience mm. um, and of course from coming from OPP I had all of those yeah. things so that's how I ended up in that role and and I loved it yeah. I really loved it the people were so nice I just, there was such a great department. I and mean, we were literally on the same floor. I was, you know, no distance yeah. at all away from where I had previously been based. But the people were lovely. They were so welcoming. Um, and yeah, they were just, I learned a lot about diagnostics and the technicalities um, mm. of them and how, particularly when you work for a big company where they've been around a while, that it's not easy to change things and personalize things. Mm. Um, but also I learned a lot about marketing uh, yeah. because they were direct to market. They were had their own marketing department and I worked closely with them um, and did quite a lot of work. Um, and it's really when I first started, you know, speaking at conferences, um, you know, doing PR, um, mm. And that was really, I would never have had that opportunity in the consultancy at the level I was at. 
and you you said that initially that that move was a it was a practical decision mm-hmm. for you to have some kind of balance as a single parent but it sounds like whether intentional or not it actually brought you so much more than a, a practical way to have a career and be yeah mom. absolutely and I think that's you know I'm a huge fan uh, I've read about this and um, I guess I kind of realized that I was living it that having a breadth of experience is really really important mm. and that you can shoot up very quickly up a, a career trajectory but you lack experience yeah. and you lack you've missed that certain things out and so my route was much more winding but once I ended up back in consultancy um I which I had to go back in really because I was kind of moved there as we got acquired and things were being moved around which I was very concerned about Mm. um what happened was I then got promoted really quite quickly up into a senior client partner role because I had all that marketing experience and I'd had lots more business development experience and I had a broader understanding and a broader network across Mm. the business and those things were all important Mm. And how how did your experience of being a single mum, being a successful professional, how did your own lived experience kind of shape some of the work that you then begin to do in the DEI mm. Yeah, it really did. I think that's what really brought me to the DNI world mm. was an experience of being a single parent. Um, and a senior client partner in a global firm is not that common. Mm. Um, in fact, I remember when I, it was a, quite a typical partner process um, where you um, you had a, I think it was called a case manager and they um, interviewed lots of people and then they put forward a case. Um, so you had to kind of be nominated for that process. And this was my mm. senior client partner process. They do it for both um associate client partner and senior client partner um and i remember him saying to me something about me being a single parent and that he wouldn't mention it Mm. as part of the process and i was like oh why not (laughs) it was really interesting that his perception was i was going to get judged on it whereas actually negatively yes i think it's the opposite i think that um that people were respectful of the fact that I could do both and that I was still successful um, and I was hitting all my targets and um, and beating them. And, and yeah, I think it was the opposite was true. People liked the fact. And actually I know colleagues did and colleagues said it to me when I got promoted. I got quite a lot of emails from people saying you know I'm so happy to see that you can be a single parent and still um, achieve and be recognized in the organization but it was just really interesting that he had had the opposite Mm. perception Um, yeah so and what did change though in in when I went back into consulting I took a more business development role so I did less uh, client delivery because that gave me more control yeah. Um, because I couldn't have travelled all around. Um, and another another um, spring to your bow then, so business mm. development, set, which 
amazing experience for what you're you find yourself doing today mm-hmm. um, but at, at the time how was that transition to to a bd role well i'd started doing more of it in um i'd always done some because we had to but i'd started doing more of it in the product department so then when um I went back into consulting. I think what was interesting is that partly it's a self-image thing, isn't it? Because I didn't see myself as a business developer. And I've probably mm. said that to people and then that's the judgment they have of you. Of course, yeah. And then when I go around selling quite big things, people are surprised because they're like, oh, I didn't think that you were that person. I thought you were the fluffy L&D hippie person. Um, and, you know, people's perception of me changed. And I think changing companies probably helped with that as well, because then you've got a whole new bunch of colleagues who don't yeah. have that previous perception of you. Yeah. So, yeah, it's uh, and very useful now, as you say. <laughs> yes. So you're with you're with Corn Ferry for some time. You, yes. You've got that breadth. And then where does the, the inspiration for doing your own thing come from? Well, I think I'd been there 16 years um, in Hay Group and Corn Ferry uh, together, which is a long time. It's a long time. Um, I don't yeah. think I clocked it was quite that long. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So 2006 to 2022. <laughs> um and I just felt like it was time. Funnily enough, when I'd started consulting, I always thought I'd work for myself. It just took me 16 years, <laughs> no more, 20 <laughs> odd years <laughs> to get there. Um, partly because as a single parent, it's a big risk. That did feel like a risk um, yeah. to I'm the sole breadwinner. You know, I do get money from Holly's dad uh, that contributes. But, you know, I am the breadwinner in, in my house and I have a 14 year old child to who everybody knows how expensive teenager teenage girls are <laughs> um <laughs> uh, yep. that did feel like a risk but i i don't enough that i felt that it wasn't too much of a risk and that i was you know in a decent enough place mm. for it to not feel like that and um i just felt ready i um had started doing um the therapy course that I mentioned, so being me therapy. Um, I was a year or so into that. And yeah, just felt like now was the time to do it for myself. Mm. So yeah, that was 18 months ago. Well, uh, yeah, just under about 16 months ago, something like that. Mm. Yeah. So the the being me therapy course Mm -hmm. sounds like it, it, took where you'd gotten to from previous development thinking about the the coaching program we did and it sounds like it's gone even deeper mm-hmm. and it's been even more transformational for you yeah so it has definitely some so the coaching course we did the guy who taught us was a gestalt psychotherapist or had been hunty so um that was very much uh informed the style of coaching that he taught us um but what this has done is taken it to a whole other level, um, mm. both from a personal perspective of realizing some things about myself that I didn't realize before, um, predominantly around what I thought were core elements of me actually being learned behaviors. Mm. And that's been was quite a revelation and a bit of a if I'm not that, then who the hell am I? Uh, a few of those moments. But also just the um, the skills that I'm learning and the 
the ability to go deeper with clients, which is why I wanted to do it. I don't mm. want to be a therapist, pure therapist. Mm. I want to integrate it into my business work. Yeah. And I think there's plenty of people out there who want to and need to go a bit yeah. deeper. Well, the world kind of relies on it, doesn't it, right now? The quality of leadership, big and small. Yeah. 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 And, and I think and going... we, I was just going to say, I think we've all got things that hold us back um, and have always held us back and we don't really tackle them. And so that's what I'm really keen to work with people on are those really kind of tricky things that are just getting in the way of us really, really meeting our full potential. And you, you touched much earlier in your story about the sense of responsibility mm. that you felt in that early part of your life. Is that something that you've been exploring through this mm. program? Yes, letting go of that. Mm. So letting go of the sense of responsibility for others, letting go of not articulating my needs and mm. actually knowing what they are, saying no to people. Um, which was, has always been hard at work, saying no to people. But, yeah, saying no, um, yeah, that's really been uh, freeing. Mm. Um, hence the name of the company, Liberare, which means yeah. to free in Italian. Um, and it's yeah. in Italian because uh, uh, much of the studying that I do for being me is in Italy. Um, mm. So I kind of was attracted to the idea of having an Italian yeah. name although of course no one can say the name of my company properly so. <laughs> well even i asked the... you the other day tell i've written it phonetically liberare um <laughs> so you've been running your own practice now for over a year uh-huh. and i know you're having a great time because we've I spoken am. about it what are you what are you learning everything i'm learning so much i've read so many books and i'm addicted to podcasts so i'm learning a lot of stuff technically um mm-hmm. you know there's so much the world is constantly changing and new theories are coming out all of the time so i've learned a lot um from a technical perspective i'm really enjoying the creative freedom Mm-hmm. When you work for a big company, you're always restricted in some ways, um, uh, and you've got to involve lots of different people, and and it's just more challenging. Whereas you do it for yourself because I've got more time, my brain is freer. So it's not just having the freedom; it's actually I have. <laughs> it made me think of um, the. Um, Oh, what's it called with Alan Sugar? I can't remember the name of it. Um, the Apprentice? Apprentice. And there yeah. was a, a guy in this, The Apprentice years and years ago. He's sadly died since, a young guy. And he said, which just made me laugh so much, uh, I'm not just a one-trick pony. I'm a whole field of ponies running towards you. <laughs> <laughs> He meant it seriously. I think it's hilarious, but that's kind of how it feels. I've got like a whole field of ponies in my head running around of ideas. And that's why I wrote the book, because these ideas were forming into this idea of how D&I shouldn't be separate. So how, you know, a team model or an inclusive team model should also be a high performing team model. And that's Mm. really where it came from is this bringing together of my different worlds i suppose yeah 
into, have, having, into a model. Having got the chance to read some of your chapters before you publish, that's one of the things I love about the way you've written it is it's so integrated rather than seeing it as something separate with a separate strategy, which I've actually never seen that really have impact where I've mm. seen it have impact is exactly what you talk about. And that alignment with how do you build this into the everyday experience rather than a, a thing that somebody has to do. Yes. That's, I found quite unusual in the way that you've written. Yeah, and that's really my whole thinking around DEI is that it shouldn't be separate. And actually, mm. we're, we're trying to make it two separate thing. It, it puts barriers up. But if we really want it to be part of our everyday existence, we have to design it into our everyday existence. Mm. So yeah, the book was actually a real joy to write because there was all these ideas, you know, floating around and it was a chance to both I'd gathered them into the model, but it also helped me improve the model from doing all of the research and gathering it all together. So yeah, mm. it's um, it it was surprisingly easy to write. Um, mm. And yeah, I'm already thinking about my next book because I've got an idea for that too. <laughs> are you are you ready to share a little <laughs> bit with the world what that is? No, I would just say that it will be a book about leadership. A book about leadership. Yeah. So what what else is next for you? Well, the book launch is uh, January 17th. Um, mm -hmm and which i think probably will be the day i put this podcast out um, and uh then a party after that so kind of at the moment what's really on my mind is getting this out into the world i've built a diagnostic mm. that goes alongside it um mm. which is really for professionals to use so any professional you know a dni professional l d team de uh, development professionals um speak to me because they will um i'm doing some online learning and and access to the diagnostic which will allow them to really work at a much deeper level with teams and in my dream what will happen is organizations will um have lots of teams doing this and so you kind of create a movement that's how i would love to see it happening and what i'm really passionate about as a consultant which is perhaps slightly unusual so I don't think it should be about me I don't think it should be limited by me and I don't think I should gatekeep my ideas I want my ideas to be out there so I want mm. people to be using them so I want organizations to be using them for themselves I want the teams to be using this for mm. themselves the book is written so that any team member any team leader could pick it up sorry I can hear my dog scratching under the table <laughs> um uh can pick it up and use it and uh, I want it to be out there. I don't want to be yeah. me being the bottleneck for any yeah. of this. So that's kind of where I am. I want this to be out there. I want to create a movement. I want people to think differently about how to create an inclusive culture in their organisation and not just think about the leaders or individuals, unconscious bias, conscious inclusion. I want them to think that actually all the work that we do happens at a team level. So let's think about the team collectively taking responsibility. Yeah. In the way that you describe that, Mel, is one of the many things I love about you is just living life based on the notion of abundance rather than scarcity. I, I must mm. keep the thing that is mine and instead 
you open, here it is, please take it, please bring it to life in your organization in a way that works for you. And you can do it, you don't need me to be there to do it. Yeah. And I think that partly comes from having worked for big consultancies where it's a little bit more, everything's a bit more gate kept. Mm -hmm. um, I want it to be, um, I want people to be more self-sufficient. That's what I believe will really help organisations is self-sufficiency, not just yeah. relying on consultants. It's the health of the system that way, isn't mm -hmm. it? You're creating healthy um, autonomy rather than mm -hmm. unhealthy dependence. Mm -hmm. Um, so you mentioned the book. Did you say the title of the book? Just say again what the title <laughs> of the current book is. It's called The Inclusive Team. <laughs> the Inclusive Team. And yes. where and when can people yes. get all of it? So 17th of January, it's available. It will be available on Amazon as uh, as a Kindle and as a, a paperback and as a hardback, actually. Um, and... Yeah, or actually people should be able to go into their local bookshop and say, I'd like to order a copy. It won't be on the shelves, but um, mm. you can go that way and order. And it will be available on all the Amazons, not just UK. Um, but Amazon but Canada? It will, be on, it will be on Amazon Canada, yes. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's it's very exciting and slightly nerve-wracking as well. Do you have a copy yet? Have you had that moment of having it? Yes, yes, I should have yeah? that. <laughs> yes, I have a copy. Yes, there is one copy in existence in the world and I have it. <laughs> well, there'll be many, many more in the months to come. I, I hope so. I hope so. Um, the time has flown in this. It has for me anyway. Time has just flown me. in this conversation. Um, and I know in your podcast, when you interview people, you always ask a couple of questions to close. I so do. I'm not going to let you off the hook. Um, <laughs> so first, I love hearing the answers that your guests give. I absolutely love it and go, ah. Um, so the first question is your secret resume. What's the headline or the strap line that you would give it? It is not all wonder not sorry say it again not all who wander are lost not all who wander are lost Beautiful. or wonder <laughs> <laughs> um mel and i joke so there's a play on words because wonder can be wonder as in wandering around and wonder can be hmm, thinking wandering works on many <laughs> levels it does um and you mentioned um, Joseph Jaworski's Synchronicity. Mm. Um, what are the other books that have inspired you that you would recommend to us all? Ooh, there's loads. Um, uh, another one that was really influential for me was Changing for Good by, I always choose people with difficult names, James Prochaska, I think is mm. how you pronounce it. Quite an old book, but um, really good around people, how people change. Um, and introduced me to the idea of pre-contemplation where people are not even ready to talk about or think about things. Um, I would say anything by Irving D. Yalom, very well-known therapist, brilliant writer, anything by him uh, I would read. And I'm listening to an audiobook which is called The Mindful Body at mm -hmm. the moment, which is by Ellen J. Langer. She um, is a psychologist and she talks about the um, 
the mind, not the mind-body connection, it's the mind-body integration. So mm. the relationship between our mind and, and our health, yeah. um, which is really fascinating. Mm. Wow. Some fabulous recommendations there. <laughs> yeah. Broke my own rules. <laughs> and then my last question for you, what advice would you give to your younger self? I would say you can say no. You can say no. Mm -hmm. I am imagining that is going to resonate with a lot of people listening yeah. to this interview, this conversation. Yeah. So, Melody, thank you so much again for asking me to do this. I have just loved this conversation so much, and I have learned a few new things about you. So, it just goes to show. And you really spend time listening to someone else's story, what comes up. So thank you. And thank you, Jenny. I have loved this. I think I'm probably going to lose my job now and uh, people will be requesting you uh, do <laughs> interviews on the podcast. But no, really, really enjoyed it. It's been fantastic uh, having a taste of my own medicine. So thank you mm -hmm. very much. This podcast is brought to you by Liberare Consulting with editing provided by Hawkins Social. If you enjoyed today's episode, why not click on the subscribe button so you are the first to hear about new episodes. We look forward to welcoming you back soon.